1: On the hunt for cleaner energy sources, solar and wind power are rather popular. But countries such as Iceland have shown the world that there are other viable renewables. Could America take a leaf from their books? And in China, one hypothesis about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic is pitching the country's government against a multi-billion dollar industry. First up, though… Last week, a drone strike in northeast Syria killed a US contractor and left several others wounded. According to the Pentagon, the drone itself was Iranian-made and was launched by a militia group affiliated with the Islamic Republic.
2: Last night, US military forces carried out a series of airstrikes in Syria targeting those responsible for attacking our person.
1: The American response was swift. And on Saturday, President Joe Biden fired a warning shot of his own, cautioning Tehran to rein in its proxies.
2: The United States does not, does not emphasize, seek conflict with Iran, but be prepared for us to act forcefully, protect our people.
1: That's exactly what happened last The tit-for-tat strikes are just the latest in a series of events that highlight the growing threats that Tehran poses. In recent months, Iran has supplied Russia with hundreds of kamikaze drones and conducted naval exercises with Moscow and Beijing, all while expanding its nuclear program. But despite all this, Iran appears to be making new friends, or at least making amends with old ones. — Earlier this month, the government agreed to restore diplomatic ties with one of its greatest regional rivals, Saudi Arabia. The deal, negotiated in Beijing, ends a seven-year lapse in relations. In public... White House officials made positive sounds about the agreement.
0: Look, we welcome any efforts to help end the war in Yemen and de-escalate tensions in the Middle East region. That is one of the reasons why the president... But privately,
1: there will be scepticism about any deal involving Iran, especially one that signals the growing influence of China in the region.
3: The deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia on March 10th seemed to come out of nowhere.
1: Greg Karlstrom covers the Middle East for The Economist.
3: There was a lot of excited commentary afterwards about whether it would transform the Middle East, whether this was a blow to the West, which was something that, ironically, both the Iranian regime and Republicans in Washington found agreement on. I think a lot of that talk was overblown. This is a return to the status quo of 2015, before Iran and Saudi Arabia severed ties. But it does raise some interesting questions about both the future of the region and America's role in it.
1: Okay, so before we talk about the future, let's take things back a bit. Why did Iran and Saudi Arabia come to the table?
3: The short answer, I think, is that both countries are exhausted. Uh, If you take Iran, the regime is in arguably its worst shape since the very turbulent time after the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Its legitimacy with the public is at an ebb. We saw that, of course, six months ago with the nationwide protests that broke out across Iran. The economy is a mess. The currency is all but worthless. Inflation is running above 50 percent per year. And so Iran wants a degree of political stability right now in the hope that will also deliver some economic stability. For the Saudis, they want stability as well. Their top priority is to end the eight-year war in Yemen, which has been a failed effort on their part to dislodge the Houthis from power and reinstall a pro-Saudi government in control of Yemen. They want to get out in large part because they want to focus on Vision 2030, which is their wildly ambitious, wildly expensive plan to diversify their economy away from oil. They need lots of foreign investment to do that. They need to attract tourists to do that. That's very hard to do when there is a war going across the border. And so as part of this deal, officials in the region say they've secured a pledge from the Iranians that they will stop supplying weapons to Houthis in Yemen. There's reason to doubt whether or not they're going to deliver on that pledge, but that is something that the Saudis hope came out of this agreement.
1: And so for Iran, how much will this deal help resolving its domestic issues?
3: My guess would be not much, to be honest. I think on the political side, it's not going to get much popular legitimacy or public support out of striking a diplomatic agreement with Saudi Arabia. Uh, On the economic front, I think the problems are just really too deep. The real, Iran's currency, dropped to an all-time low against the dollar in February. It's lost 94% of its value over the past 10 years— 55% over the past year alone. Similarly, we've heard the Saudis talk about maybe being willing to invest in Iran now that this agreement has been signed, but I think that's unlikely to happen while American sanctions remain in place. So the economic benefits from this, like the political benefits, likely to be fairly limited. The one thing the Iranians are really hoping to get out of this is regarding Iran International, which is a Saudi-backed Persian language news channel that broadcasts to Iran via satellite which has done wall-to-wall coverage of the protests over the past six months, the economic situation. It's a very anti-regime channel. And this is something that the Iranians, when they were talking to the Saudis, one of their conditions was to have this channel muzzled as a condition of the deal. And so they're not expecting too many tangible benefits, I think, from this. But there is perhaps the possibility that some of the media criticism aimed at them will be muted as a result.
1: And you mentioned the U.S. sanctions. Could these sanctions be lifted?
3: I don't see much appetite in America for lifting these sanctions. The Iranians, by all accounts, are no longer interested in returning to the deal. They have instead accelerated their nuclear program to unprecedented levels. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, says it has found traces of uranium enriched up to 84% purity, which is just a hair's breadth below weapons grade. Iran has also restricted the IAEA's ability to monitor its nuclear facilities. The regime from the supreme leader on down seems to have decided that it doesn't want to negotiate with the West anymore. They think they have built a so-called resistance economy that can endure indefinite American sanctions. They're growing closer to China, closer to Russia as well, now sending drones to support the Russian war in Ukraine. so Iran is not willing to go back to the deal. And as long as they're not, there's going to be no appetite in America for easing sanctions.
1: And so if Iran isn't prepared to come to the table, what can the West do to curb the development of nuclear weapons?
3: There's no easy answer to that question. The West has a series of bad options to choose from. One of them is to continue diplomacy, either to try and revive the original nuclear deal and those efforts have failed, or to negotiate a lesser nuclear deal. But it's not clear anyone, the Iranians, the Gulf states, Israel, even many people in Washington would go for a lesser agreement. The second option, which has been floated for years, is a military strike either by Israel or on Iran's nuclear facilities. That would do damage. It would set back Iran's nuclear program, but only for a short time. That damage could be repaired, and it would reinforce the very rationale for having that program in the first place and trying to cultivate a nuclear deterrent. Which leaves a third option, which is to continue with the status quo, to accept that The regime is at least a year or two away from being able to produce and deliver a nuclear weapon. And even if it were able to produce one, it's not suicidal. It wants it more as a deterrent than something it would actually use. That seems like the most likely option, but it's a source of huge anxiety for other countries in the Middle East.
1: And so why have the Saudis looked to Beijing instead of Washington to help deal with this?
3: The Saudis have felt insecure in their relationship with America for at least a decade. Barack Obama's support for the Arab Spring alienated them. Donald Trump's failure to respond when their oil facilities were attacked in 2019 unnerved them. Joe Biden's promise to make them a pariah obviously upset them. And so if your strongest partner seems unreliable and you're worried about your greatest enemy across the Persian Gulf, uh, it's only natural to try and hedge. And so they've tried to bring China into a larger political and diplomatic role in the region, partly because China, by virtue of having relations with Iran, can do things that America can't. But it's also a way of sending a message to Washington. The Saudis would like America to realize that they're not happy with how this relationship has gone, uh, and they do have other partners and other friends, and they are eager to try and cultivate new relationships.
1: And is this something the U.S. should be concerned about
3: In the short term, I don't think so. They are still incredibly relevant in the region, and this agreement, I don't think, does anything to diminish that. When you talk to Saudi officials, they recognize that America is the only reliable, great power they have as a security guarantor. From the Iranian perspective, there's a lot of optimism about the 25-year strategic partnership with China that Iran signed two years ago. There's a lot of excitement about increased ties with Russia over the past year, and opportunities to work together on sanctions busting and boosting trade. But there are limits to all of that. The relationship with China is still very lopsided. Russia, meanwhile, under heavy sanctions, as is Iran, there's a limit to how much investment, how much trade can flow back and forth between these two countries. So there's optimism in Iran about looking beyond the West, but there's only so much that its new partners can deliver. Uh, And for Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab countries in the Gulf, there is a recognition that as much as they want to diversify their relations, they are still going to rely on America for security and that is not going to change in the near future.
1: Greg, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
1: If you've ever found yourself relaxing in the warm, soothing waters of a hot spring, what you're actually doing is enjoying the products of a vital source of renewable energy. These springs exist because deep underground water is heated naturally and then pushed to the surface. This is something that many countries, like Iceland, for example, have harnessed in order to expand their energy capacity. This plant in the Icelandic mountains of Hengil, has a capacity of more than 300 megawatts, making it one of the world's biggest geothermal power stations. Iceland generates all of its electricity from renewables, and almost a third of that is geothermal. And almost 90% of homes are heated by geothermal energy as well. So it's possible that geothermal could be a viable alternative to dirtier fuels, Yet in many countries, even where the ground is capable of producing such power, this steamy potential just hasn't been tapped.
2: In the United States, people have already been using geothermal energy in some capacity since the 1800s. And actually, Native American tribes for much longer. Hot springs and geysers used to heat water.
1: Erin Braun is a West Coast correspondent in the United States for The Economist.
2: And then in the last few decades, America started using it for power production. And the country actually is the biggest generator of geothermal energy for power production in the world. But less than 1% of America's power generation comes from geothermal. Well, why hasn't it taken off until now? One big reason is that Other forms of energy like fossil fuels and now wind and solar are much cheaper than geothermal. But the other big reason is that geothermal is limited by geography. It's very easy to generate heat from the earth, but that heat doesn't exist everywhere super close to the surface. And for electricity generation, which needs much higher temperatures, we see a much more limited geography. So, right now, Basically, Nevada and California are the national leaders in geothermal generation. But we're starting to see much more interest across the West and across the country. So tell me, how exactly does geothermal energy work? So the movement of tectonic plates has pushed up magma closer to the Earth's surface. And we see a lot of plate boundaries in the western U.S., then you have these reservoirs of water that is heated by the earth that then pushes up the water towards the surface, is turned into steam, and then can rotate a turbine. Geothermal energy is nearly emissions-free and renewable. And the big pro to geothermal energy is that this kind of power production can be used anytime, any day, no matter the weather. And so compared to other renewables like wind and solar that can't be used all the time. It's got this huge potential to be this massive baseload energy source. So that's kind of like nuclear power, natural gas, hydropower that can be on whenever you need it. And so
1: there's been a lot of discussion about how America's Inflation Reduction Act could spur renewable energy development. Will geothermal see any of the benefits of that?
2: It should, yeah. Yeah the Inflation Reduction Act provides all kinds of production and investment incentives for all manner of green energy technology. And the big thing that the IRA provides is certainty. So these tax credits are for 10 years. And for a kind of nascent, unproven technology, that provides more certainty than the industry has really ever seen before. And actually, the infrastructure law That was passed in 2021 is also helping to fund some startups pilot projects as well. And the kind of best case scenario for what comes out of these tax credits is that the Department of Energy is hoping that geothermal can provide about eight and a half percent of the U.S.'s electricity generation by 2050. And if the Department of Energy's goal is to be reached, that means lots more pilot projects and actually a lot more drilling. DRILLING. This sounds a lot more like fossil fuels than renewables. You're not wrong. So drilling for geothermal energy, drilling for heat, basically, is very similar to drilling for oil and gas. Which is why we see a lot of the oil majors and former oil and gas executives piling into the industry, either with investment or switching jobs to run geothermal
3: companies. I wanted to pivot into renewables. My group at Shell was actually the group, when there was a geothermal project, we would do all of the cost estimating for the drilling the well.
2: When I was reporting this story in Houston, I chatted with a former Shell executive, Cindy Taff, who now runs Sage Geosystems, a geothermal startup. And over coffees at this Houston cafe, she told me kind of why she got into the industry and the challenges that it faces.
3: There's heat everywhere. You just have to drill to it. And then you have to figure out, if you don't have that formation that produces that water, how to get the heat to the surface. So I just think when we crack that nut on how to, that's called hot, dry rock, Mm -hmm. how you get hot, dry rock to be cost competitive, then it's just going to take off.
2: And Cindy's not alone. Geothermal represents a huge opportunity for workers to transition out of fossil fuel jobs and into green jobs because of the skills overlap. But as with many things about the energy transition, there are a lot of roadblocks in the way.
1: What kind of roadblocks are still in the way for geothermal
2: energy? There are two big barriers preventing a kind of big scale up of geothermal. The first is cost. That kind of upfront capital cost that comes with drilling exploration is huge. And so startups are really struggling to find the investment that they need and Venture capital firms are proving a bit squeamish on that technology risk. And then the other big barrier is permitting, the process that firms have to go through to get a project approved on federal land, which is where most geothermal resources are. And right now, the process is very tricky and can take a really long time. It might trigger up to... Six different environmental assessments and a study by the National Renewable Energy Lab in Denver suggested that that process can take between seven to 10 years, which is just not a feasible timeline when we're talking about the needs of the energy transition So yes, there are a lot of barriers to scaling up geothermal energy, but I did hear from a lot of folks that this could be the year that pilot projects start producing. And so if that happens, we might get a very clear indication very quickly whether geothermal is ready for prime time. Erin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Auré.
1: Since the COVID-19 pandemic began three years ago, there have been ongoing questions about where the virus came from and how it first jumped from animals to humans. There are two main theories. There's the lab leak one, the idea that the virus escaped from a lab in the Chinese city of Wuhan, and then there is the zoonotic hypothesis. Proponents argue that the virus jumped from animals to humans at a city market. This latter theory has led to calls for a crackdown on the trading of wild animals for meat. But even for the powerful Chinese Communist Party, that is easier said than done.
4: It's been on again, off again for many years.
1: Ted Plafka is a China correspondent at The Economist.
4: They first attempted a crackdown. 20 years ago, after the SARS epidemic that began in late 2002 and turned China upside down for much of 2003, after that, they implemented a ban on the consumption of wildlife on all aspects of the wildlife industry, the transport, the raising, the farming. And within months, under pressure from the wildlife industry lobby, which is quite powerful, most of those bans were watered down or actually removed. An interesting article in The Wall Street Journal put it in August of 2003, Civet Cat and Raccoon Dog are back on the menu in China.
1: And so tell us a little bit more about this wildlife trade and just how
4: influential it is. It's a large trade worth tens of billions of dollars. It includes animals raised for meat, exotic animals like pangolins and snakes and alligators and raccoon dogs and civet cats. They're sold in markets that often sell a lot of fresh meat and seafood. These markets tend to be in big buildings, open plan, big space. With dozens and dozens of stalls organized by category. There's seafood and fresh meat, sometimes fruit and vegetable. And very often in one corner of these markets, as was the case in the Wuhan market, there is a wild animal section. And people go and buy, sometimes live, sometimes slaughtered on the spot. And health examiners have been to the one in Wuhan in 2019. They actually observed cages positioned, sometimes with mammals atop cages holding birds, which is a very bad combination. Mixing species is the way viruses mix and evolve and jump. So it's a very, very bad environment. After exotic animals, most likely the civet cat was identified as the source of the SARS infection. The provincial government in Guangdong province, where the epidemic was most severe, and the national government implemented bans, and they put on these big strike-hard operations. One was called Operation Greensword. They seized 30,000 exotic animals from markets and restaurants around the province. And then a national campaign called Operation Spring Thunder seized 900,000 animals. But a few months after all of that, the bans were lifted under influence from the wildlife industry lobby.
1: So these operations didn't help?
4: They did, but only for a short time. The industry came roaring back with very little extra regulation, and it was worth something like 76 billion US dollars by the end of 2017. In the time between SARS and COVID, there were a lot of very prominent people who issued very clear, very urgent warnings about the risk posed by this wildlife trade. One of the most famous heroic doctors from the SARS epidemic, a man named Zhong Nanshan, gave a speech to China's parliament in 2010, warning that wildlife trade absolutely posed the risk of another pandemic along the lines of SARS. And the director of the Wuhan Virology Lab, she's very widely known as the Bat Lady, her name is Shi Li. She warned in 2018 that wild animal trade was definitely a risk and could certainly lead to a pandemic. And she said the best way to avoid another pandemic is stay away from wild animals.
1: Okay, so that was 2018. But this time around, have we seen as much resistance from the people involved in the wildlife trade?
4: Yes, they're still very active. When the wildlife trade was again identified as a possible origin of the COVID epidemic, China's top leader, Xi Jinping himself, made public remarks saying that eating wildlife was a bad habit and posed risks and that it had to stop. But resistance remains strong. The industry still has a lot of influence and has actually sort of seized on the competing lab leak theory. The idea that the virus may have emerged not through a jump between animals, but through a lab accident. The wildlife industry has seized on that to argue that maybe they were not the cause of it and maybe they don't need such strict regulation.
1: So it sounds like the wildlife trade is going to continue then.
4: The struggle is on. They are struggling to resist regulation and bans. But China's in an odd spot. China has been so angry about anyone who suggested that a lab leak might be possible that they are left having to argue that it most definitely came from an animal in a market. Well, if that's the case, they need to get on top of that. They obviously failed to get on top of it even after all the evidence from SARS 20 years ago and after all the warnings since then.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Ted.
4: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.